Welcome to the Development Policy Centre. In this podcast, you'll hear contestants battle it out for the best three-minute aid pitch. The session was recorded at the 2017 Australasian Aid Conference and features Joel Nagan of the University of Public Health at Sydney University as the chair. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the first ever three-minute aid pitch at the Australasian Aid Conference. My name is Joel Nagan. I am your host for this uh, morning's event. Um, I'm an academic at the University of Sydney and co-convener of the conference with uh, Stephen and Anthea and Camilla. And in the spirit of a three-minute aid pitch, I'm going to try and keep this introduction as short as I can. We're going to do something a bit new and a bit different this morning. It's a, a trial run, so to speak, the first time we are trying this type of event. Over the four years of the conference, there's been lots of talk about the challenges of international development, the challenges of aid. But what about solutions? We can't just come to these conferences and say, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is a problem, and DFAT does this, and the World Bank does that. We need solutions as well. So we really do need to think through how Australia might enhance its development impact. And so we've asked people to come up with solutions. DFAT has its innovation exchange. The Australasian Aid Conference has the three-minute aid pitch. The innovation exchange has bean bags. We do not. <laughs> but we have people who can synthesize ideas in three minutes. So this three-minute aid pitch will be showcasing the research and thinking of people in the Development Policy Center here at ANU and others. The pitches have been selected based on originality, clarity, and relevance to our region. The names of the presenters are in the order that they'll be presenting or on the back of your um, little piece of paper, which you should have received in coming in. I'm not going to read them all out in the interest of time. They will come up and speak. Um, Each speaker gets exactly three minutes. At three minutes, I will stand up and I will be really annoying. And I will force them off the stage through the trap door to my right. Now, I'm normally when I lecture, my students stare into their phone and tablet and computer because I'm such an engaging speaker. But in this situation, we are encouraging you to a laptop or a tablet. The voting is on a phone, tablet, or laptop. So the instructions are here. Hopefully you've all received one. So over the course, and the voting is open now, please, hopefully don't vote before you've heard any of this. (laughs) I suppose you might, early voting. Um, Please do vote for your preferred um, pitch, uh, for the most promising idea, the one you think has most resonance. So please kind of sign into that. Okay. So after everyone gives their talk, we'll have a few moments for uh, some questions and comments from the audience. Questions and comments from the audience can only be 30 seconds. Do not have a question that is longer than the speech you're referring to. (laughs) We will start now. Our first is Chris Ostendorf. Welcome. Nothing like going first, right? Is this on? Can everybody hear me? Okay, I need to start off by apologizing. I've been battling a bit of a cold, but I'm going to try to go three minutes without coughing. So, wish me luck. 
Um, so, right, so I'm going to set the scene. We're in the middle of these SDGs, 17 huge goals, everything from ending poverty to um, climate change. Everybody wants to know how are these things going to be funded in a way that's sustainable and um, effective. Let me take a step back and tell you a little bit about the Fred Hollis Foundation. We're a bunch of eye doctors that go out and repair people's visions. You might not know that over 30 million people globally are blind. 80% of those is avoidable, and 90% live in developing countries. So it is a development problem, and it is fixable. The second thing I want you to know is cataract, which is a grain of your, eye, of your eye lens, is the leading cause of avoidable blindness globally, and it's fixed with a really simple surgery. In fact, it's 20 minutes. The patient lies down on the table, 20 minutes later, gets an eye patch, walk, goes home. One day later, eye patch comes off, she and he can see. Incredible. We know it works. We know it's effective. It delivers social and economic returns. What we want to do is get more operations to more people. How are we going to do it? Do you think it's going to be the public sector? Doubtful. Certainly not alone. The, the <laughs> purses are too small. The demands are too high. What about the private sector? Here's something we can talk about, right? So for us, this is private sector eye clinics. So what I want to talk to you about today is more specifically social enterprise eye clinics, all right? What are they? They produce high-quality, high-volume, low-cost services, and they run on a cross-subsidy model. But that means those who can afford to pay for the services subsidize those who cannot. Pretty simple, and it's not new. There's over 300 of these worldwide that are operating, and the, mar- the margins that they're operating are between 10 and 35%. If those business people in the community are in the audience are going, wow, pretty good. Importantly, 35 to 80% of the patients receive those services for free, below cost, or at cost. Sounds pretty sensible, right? What's the barrier? Capital. It's all about the money, honey. So, startup capital is really hard for these people to get. Enter social impact investments. What are they? They're an investment option that blends social return with financial return. In other words, investors give a little in financial returns in order to have a social return. Did you know that since 2007, impact investing market has grown to over 100 billion, with a B, and is scheduled to grow in the next few years to 500 billion to 1.3 trillion. Huge. What can A do? A can boost investments in their own social enterprises. They can kickstart um, pilot programs. They can build common standards and investment framework that people are going to use, and they can help identify good opportunities. So to summarize, social impact investing, innovative financial solutions to help solve some of today's social problems. How'd I do? Do I get points for that? <laughs> okay, hi. My, my pitch is about establishing a technical cooperation organisation in Australia, informed by but not the same as the German aid delivery model. In the interest of disclosure, I've worked in government and now work for managing contractor, but this aid pitch is mine. I'm not speaking on behalf of my employer. A few short years ago, aid was integrated into DFAT. The rationale was to more closely align the aid and diplomatic arms of Australia's international policy agenda. As well as aid policy, a raft of new work in the form of programming, designing, contracting, monitoring, evaluating and program administration has been introduced into DFAT. 
So let's take a quick look at Germany, where the Ministry, BMZ, sets policy, strategy and budgets, and where the Technical Cooperation Agency, GIZ, delivers the program. So this slide shows BMZ with 1,000 employees and GIZ with 17,000 employees, and where GIZ is synonymous with German capability. BMZ commissions GIZ to administer and deliver programs. There's a supervisory board for GIZ comprising 10 government reps and 10 employee reps. So the next slide. So this is DFAT with 9,000 employees, including locally engaged staff, uh, with about 3,000 in Australia and the rest overseas. As well as diplomacy, foreign policy advice, negotiating international agreements, trade talks, consular assistance and running the passports office, DFAT also delivers a big and complex aid program, working with multiple implementing partners under numerous types of contracts and agreements. So I want to draw your attention to three points. One, are the transaction costs. The many-to-many -many relationships give rise to duplication and inefficiency. Expertise, development expertise, expertise is spread throughout many organisations. And within DFAT, development expertise competes with demands for other skills. Third, Australian identity. Multiple organisations are branded differently, leading to the Australian government identity being inconsistent at best and invisible at worst. So a solution to reducing transaction costs, harnessing aid and development expertise and lifting our profile might be to set up a separate entity for technical cooperation. So DFAT could increase its focus on policy, strategy and budget and then commission something like an Austec to deliver the aid program. Options could include establishing a government enterprise similar to GIZ. Other options could include establishing a smaller intermediary organisation to reduce those transaction points, or a consortium of commercial providers could be engaged to form an entity known as Oztec or similar with an appropriate governance structure. Some questions are, how do we ensure cooperation and not competition? What's in it for commercial providers? What's in it for government? How can Oztec best draw on the full range of Australian aid expertise amongst organisations? How would the branding work? What's in scope? What's out of scope? My pitch is to say, let's resource and develop a serious feasibility study on this. Hey everyone. Um, so my idea is that we need to communicate aid better. You might have seen this policy brief. I wrote about aid comms last year and there's a big reason why this orange policy brief is still relevant. <laughs> this orange hot mess <laughs> and the ideologies he empowers could really make life hard for global aid. And unfortunately, this presidential Furby and his whack ideas are empowering some of our own loud and shouty minority voices. As Foreign Minister Julie Bishop said here yesterday, support for Australian aid has to come from home. So people need to know what it does. <laughs> Political leaders also need to be empowered to stay strong in the face of kooky opponents. So communications is not just about engagement or accountability, it's about protection. <laughs> I've got five things we should be doing to keep aid safe in this age of Trump and friends from a comms perspective. Number one is don't get complacent. How we communicate and talk about aid is something that we need to be thinking about every day, not just in the heat of the moment. Um, much of what the sector does remains a mystery to the average person. We shouldn't be letting dumb myths about aid persist unchallenged. Our communications failures are where alternate facts creep in. <laughs> so number two, don't give up on facts. <laughs> 
The post-truth era is terrifying, but facts still matter. We still have some amazing facts and figures about development progress on our side and about the work still to be done. And Hans Rosling, who passed away last week, he showed the amazing power of communicating those well. So number three, set the deal breakers. There should be some principles and aspects of our aid program that are non-negotiable. We shouldn't have to spend our time defending them over and over again. It's the job of communicators to repeat things over and over again with stories, examples, and logical convincing messaging. There's often little point trying to change the minds of those that put forward bad ideas, but we need to provide the backup so those ideas get dismissed. Number four, fight popularism with popularism. Sometimes it might feel hard to believe, but aid is actually pretty popular. <laughs> of course, domestic priorities always come on top, but we know from our public opinion work at the centre that Australians generally like the idea of giving aid. So we need to take a very, very small leaf out of Trump's book <laughs> and be more popularist and more confident in our aid messaging. I'm not saying we should make stuff up, but if he can somehow convince people he is against the 1% while living in a golden marble apartment, we can do a better job of talking about aid. And finally, staying quiet is not an option. Sometimes people think it is better to completely shut up about aid in the hope that Fruit Loops forget that it exists. <laughs> this makes no sense. It has proven itself an easy scapegoat. If we shut up, we see power over the message. So we need to communicate clear messages <laughs> if we want aid and the values it represents to stay safe in this weird new world we're in. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm stuck. Um, when Julie Bishop launched our bid for the Human Rights membership of the Human Rights Council, she said Australia is committed to a better world. And if you read the statements from the Minister and from DFAT, we actually have quite a large and sophisticated approach to global human rights. The problem is that is never communicated as part of a broader understanding of Australia's place in the world. And I guess my central pitch is we have to find ways of making it clear that human rights are not just an optional add-on. They are actually essential to our security. This is not 1941. There are no submarines or fighter planes moving south ready to strike Darwin. The things that are most likely to affect our security are rising political instability linked to events such as climate change, food and water shortages, growing global and national inequality, new forms of disease, unregulated flows of people, all of which are far greater threats to our security in the full sense than conventional military hardware. In fact, I'm very tempted by a comment one of our ambassadors made to me, which is maybe we should put our aid workers into uniforms because that way Australians would understand that they are actually doing something important. <laughs> but my main point is we have to find a language that stresses human rights is part of a realist approach 
not just a moral and ethical one. And I think there are three things we have to do. One, we have to clean up our own house. We cannot talk about global human rights while we maintain offshore detention centres. And secondly, and now I'm going to relate to Ashley, I think, we need to, I think, every morning say to ourselves, he is not our president. <laughs> he is literally not our president. Stop this nonsense that every discussion is framed by Donald Trump. This is an opportunity for Australia to say, we are not America we will have our own way of seeing the world. And my last point is that I'm sick of politicians blaming the public for not understanding the importance of foreign aid. It is about time we say to the politicians, you set the discourses, you set the language, it is your responsibility to go out and explain to people why development assistance is an essential part of preserving Australian security. the screen was a full detailed list of ADB's private sector investment in the Pacific in 2015 and that's it. <laughs> so the Pacific Island countries like those of any other region need investment to develop their resources if they're to succeed economically. The ADB isn't doing enough. They did nothing in 2015. It's not fair. They do some things in other years but they're not doing enough. The International Finance Corporation is doing a little bit, but it has higher priorities and it needs bigger projects than the Pacific can provide. The private banks are withdrawing or limiting their lending and they don't take up equity, which many small businesses need. So Australia is working with the ADB to improve the regulatory environment, but creating an investment climate is good, but it's not enough if nobody's investing. And it needs an informed and committed investor who has patient capital, but who requires sound business practices and realistic prospects of profitability instead of just generosity. It, therefore, it needs some sort of development finance to, to institution similar to CDC in the UK and other countries around the world. If Australia, hopefully jointly with New Zealand, doesn't do it, nobody else will in this region. If this doesn't happen, then the prospects for economic growth in many of the countries of the Pacific look bleak, and this will inevitably mean more pressure for more grant funding, which will be difficult to meet within a constrained budget for aid. Austria recently set up something similar, and they're much smaller than us, funding from their equivalent of the Export Finance Investment Co uh, Insurance Corporation. Now, that's actually not an ideal way to do it, but it's an option, it's virtually costless. For the DFI to become self-financing and possibly even profitable, it may need to operate in Asia, but the key driver is the need in the Pacific. The key aspects for economic growth in the Pacific remain 
what the domestic government does, number one, labour mobility if to Australia and New Zealand and private investment. This is a proposal to invigorate the third of these and it can even add some real substance to the otherwise very limited benefits to the Pacific from the PESA Plus proposal and I think it's a policy proposal that actually might appeal to the current government's ideological framework and might also work. Thank you. Uh, hi, right. Thank you very much. So, Stephen Pinker, um, Michael Wilcott referred to this yesterday, has suggested there are uh, five key factors which explain why physical violence has declined over the last 10,000 years. The Leviathan and Justicia, or in aid speak, effective government and the rule of law. Gentle commerce, note the gentle. The feminization of society, the expanding circle of empathy, and the escalator of reason. I think it's sobering to think that all of these drivers of progress are currently under threat as authoritarianism, sexism, protectionism, nationalism and attacks on science and reason all seem to be on the increase. The growing threat of climate change adds a new set of existential threats to this mix. So in the face of this dilemma, what do we do? I would suggest that in different ways, we must all become human rights and planetary defenders. As Conor Giersey of the LSE has noted, in our contemporary culture, human rights are the best commitment gadget available. So what is a commitment gadget? <laughs> well, the commitment gadget I have sets me targets, or I set targets. It holds me to account, and I can share that with anybody around the world who then can... My public accountability is clear. In the same way, human rights conventions, international law, and the rest of it help establish public accountability. They keep our... They encourage the better angels of our nature and they overcome, in my case, my lazy inner demons. But human rights will only provide this rallying point for new forms of international cooperation if, as Geerty argues, it is recognised it's not the language of human rights that's important, it's the sentiments that lie behind it. To see people truly as people and therefore each of them as entitled to right treatment on account of their humanity. And the good news is Human rights and planetary defenders around the world are already doing this, from climate warriors in the Pacific to trade unions in East Asia, from those campaigning on sexual rights to fighting corruption, and from indigenous rights activists to health and education professionals in many places. We can and should join an existing movement. So what does this mean for aid? Well, we need, as Ashley says, to reframe the narrative, and she's going to write it. <laughs> Populism is not going to be defeated by spreadsheets. We need to support, link, and become humanitarian rights defenders and planetary defenders ourselves. And that means we need to learn from and, and become that. Third, we need from, move, from picking winners to mould spreading. I.e., we need to think about the, the temperature and humidity rights to build international, international linkages and movements. And finally, we need to bring all of this back home, and Dennis is going to write this bit, and show that the national interest is better served by investing in our common humanity as the key to addressing the collective challenges we face. Thank you.
So the Pacific has always been central to Australia's aid program, yet development achievements in the region have been modest. Um, the Pacific has fared poorly in economic terms relative to other parts of the world. Um, and that's in part due to its unique combination of small scale and remoteness from major markets. Those geographical attributes mean that most Pacific Island countries must look beyond traditional development strategies that are focused on increasing exports. In a recent report on labour mobility, um, produced jointly by ANU and the World Bank, um, we show the extent to which migration can increase the incomes of Pacific Islanders. Average income per person in the Pacific is around 120th what it is in Australia. For a Pacific Islander, the single most effective means of increasing income is through migration. No aid program, uh, no policy reform comes close uh, to bringing comparable benefits. The migration of Pacific Islanders is not new, of course. Um, Samoans and Tongans have, the, have been migrating for, for decades. But migration is limited for Pacific Island countries where poverty is greatest. PNG and Solomon Islands have among the lowest rates of migration in the world. There's a real opportunity to increase the incomes of Pacific Islanders um, by expanding their work and migration opportunities in Australia. Uh, there are also win-win opportunities. Um, Pacific Islanders benefit from working in Australia. Uh, Australia can fill labour shortages uh, in horticulture, for example, uh, also in aged care in the future. When we talk about development, our focus tends to be um, the incomes of people in developing countries. We don't consider migrants. But what we should care about is the fact that a Solomon Islander can uh, in enjoy a 20-fold increase in their income. It shouldn't matter whether that Solomon Islander remains in the Solomon Islands or migrates to Australia, or another country for that matter. Our aid program recognises the importance um, of the Pacific for Australia, and it focuses assistance accordingly. Our migration policy does not. So what's needed is a coherent policy approach. Uh, Australian migration policy should consider development impacts in regions that are important to Australia, regions like the Pacific. Aid policy, in turn, should seek to facilitate migration by the poor, recognising that this is a legitimate strategy to alleviate poverty. Um, the Pacific, a, a region with limited export potential, um, in that region, aid for labour mobility makes a lot more sense than aid for trade. There are many areas where the aid program can help. Um, the aid program could be used to reduce the cost of skills certification, for example. Um, all graduates of the aid-funded Asia-Pacific Technical College could be made eligible for Australian graduate visas. Ensuring that Australia's migration policy and aid policy complement rather than undermine one another in relation to the Pacific would enable more Pacific Islanders to work in Australia, and in doing so, that would increase the incomes of Pacific Islanders and reduce poverty in the region. Thank you. Um, we have received a question, people asking, how many times should you vote? Um, please vote for one candidate. <laughs> I think it'll only let you vote for one. You vote for one candidate, your preferred candidate. Um, I think many people in this room will probably be familiar with solar water disinfection or sodas. This is a way of helping to improve the quality of water so that it becomes safer to drink by using the sun's UV rays. Um, and it strikes me that sodas and the power of sunlight is perhaps a really good metaphor for thinking about aid transparency, which is the focus of my pitch. Um, late last year, a colleague and I uh, conducted an audit of the, a transparency audit of the DFAT website, looking at project level transparency in the aid program. This uh, replicated an earlier audit that was done in 2013, 
just before the reintegration of Aussie um, into DFAT. In 2016, as compared to 2013, we found a general decline in the public availability of detailed documents about uh, aid-funded projects, uh, with the exception of evaluations. There was a slight increase. And in addition to these overall measures, we looked at uh, the availability of information by country, by region, by sectors, and also the relationship between project size and transparency. Now, our audit is just one way of measuring transparency, and there are a number of other ways that um, this can be done. But I think generally, whether you look at some of the various transparency indices or our audit, um, there is still a lag in the accessibility of project-level information. We're seeing some improvement at the country and the program level, but going right down to the bottom, there's still um, work to do. So our key recommendation from the audit was that the Australian Aid Program should develop its own custom dynamic database for publishing aid information and documents. Uh, such a database would help to standardize the publication of documents and also serve as a much-needed historical archive. So developing a database is, of course, by itself not a particularly innovative idea. Uh, other donors have done this and have done it well, which is good news for Australia because it means there is some, something to go to work from. Um, but doing so would be a new approach for Australia, and I think it could make a big difference. Um, if I could just go back to SOTIS. Um, now this is not an expensive method, but it does require cons consistent work and replenishment. And I think the same would be the case with a new database. Um, though that developing that database might take some time and investment, and it should, for, to get a product that really works and really meets the needs of our many stakeholders, particularly those in aid recipient countries. Um, after that, the running cost would be fairly minimal. The key is that any effort, once established, would have to be sustained, that new information has to be continually updated. And it's also important to acknowledge there are limits to what trans effective transparency on quality. SOTIS doesn't completely eliminate the risk of disease, uh, but it does significantly reduce it. Uh, and similarly, having a highly transparent aid program will not fix all of the issues, all the quality, improved quality, um, not fix everything, but it, it does create a strong incentive uh, for improving quality overall. So my conclusion is that now would be a great time to let the sun shine more strongly on the aid program. Thank you, Quinn. Last but not least, Stephen Howes. <laughs> yes, they had to let me in. As, in, as incomes grow, countries graduate from aid. And when it comes to Australian aid, Asian countries are living on borrowed time. We need to keep supporting Asia, but to future-proof the aid program, we need to transition away from country programs towards working on common challenges on regional and global initiatives. This will involve more funding for climate change and for humanitarian crises, regionally and globally. But there should also be a much greater focus on research, especially in areas where Australia has a comparative strength. Research into the diseases of the poor has sadly long been a blind spot for, the, for Australian aid. Not so global agricultural research. Since 1982, the Australian Council for International Agricultural Research has led the way in this area. Its work is thoroughly evaluated and high return. It's also politically popular. When the coalition came to power, AusAid was abolished and the aid program slashed. But ACR was preserved and its budget almost completely protected. Social science research is also well supported by the aid program through a variety of initiatives now supervised by DFAT. Much good research is undertaken, but the management is underwhelming, and therefore the potential far from realised. Initiatives come and go. The missing gap is international medical research, research to deliver new drugs and medical aids for diseases where the market return is weak. I'm sure no one needs to be convinced of the life-saving potential of technology and innovation in this space. 
or of Australia's strength in medical research more broadly. Nor the relative ease of making progress in this area in the technological space relative to the difficulties of improving governance and health systems, about which we've heard a lot at this conference. Currently, however, Australian funding for global medical research is limited and bears very little fruit. Mary Miranda Policy Cures has shown that of the 600 global medical research ideas supported by the National Health and Medical Research Council, between 2007 and 2014, none has given rise to a new market product. We need more funding specifically focused on converting good ideas to lives saved. This is not a task that should be given to DFAT. Government departments do not manage research well. Effective research management requires a culture of specialisation and long-term endeavour. That's simply not something DFAT can provide. One possibility would be for the government to create a sister organisation to ACR, the Australian Council for International Medical Research. Alternatively, and as argued in our forthcoming death policy discussion paper, (laughs) perhaps more realistically, ACR could itself be reimagined as the Australian Council for International Research and given a dual mandate for both global agricultural and global medical research. To survive and flourish, the aid program needs to think regionally and globally rather than bilaterally, and needs to focus on areas of Australian strength. To future-proof the aid program, global medical research should be scaled up, but not within DFAT. A specialist agency is needed. Vote for more aid funding for global medical research. (laughs) Vote for the Australian Council for International Research. Thank you. Thank you to our nine speakers. Extremely well done. Um, And I didn't really have to ding anybody. I was quite disappointed. I was looking forward to that. Um, Now is your time, now that everyone's spoken, to vote. So hopefully you have your voting cards. Um, Please log in and vote once for uh, the most promising, your most preferred of the aid pitches. We also have some time, I'll give you a second to do that. We also have some time for questions or comments or responses from the audience. Um, Please make your comment or question shorter than the presentation to which you are referring. Um, We will start here. We have microphones. Um, my question is uh, for Dennis, um, and um, uh, some of the uh, crisis we are um, uh, seeing today is uh, because of the. Um, some of them are due to climate and um, uh, um, other issues, but a lot of them generate from uh, violence in the, con- in the countries. Uh, where uh, they are erupting. And that violence is sometimes due uh, partly to uh, the foreign policy in itself. So if aid is going to be uh, right, uh, um, uh, uh, has to incorporate an element of human rights, how do you see um, um, the foreign policy aspect when it actually uh, is intentionally or unintentionally somehow... It affects uh, the eruption of violence. Okay. Dennis, give a one-minute response. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I, I don't think I can give a one-minute response. I mean, I, obviously you're pointing to very complicated interactions, and all I can say is that 
Greater global inequality and greater inequality within nations is clearly a driver of political instability. And that is something that I think is a consideration that always needs to be fed into Australian development assistance. It may even, dare I say, be more important than giving contracts to Australian-based um, industries. Hilton from Reality Learning. Ashley, some strategies, some examples of what you might do. Um, yeah, I sort of, in three minutes, couldn't really talk too much about that. But in that policy brief that I wrote last year, I talked about some of the ways that DFAT could improve its website, improve the stories and messaging that it, that it uses, and um, sort of engage more on social media. And I think, um, you know, look to other sectors. We need to look to how other sectors communicate and convince people on their policy areas and their policy directives. I think sometimes a communications has been a bit tame. So we need to be a bit more creative. That's my thoughts. Perhaps we should ask the Gruen transfer to do a <laughs> special show at the A conference next year. Other questions or comments? Hi, this is uh, just a comment. I think um, congratulations to the conference organisers for this idea, which they actually copied off DFAT's innovation three-minute pitch challenge last year. <laughs> um, look, I think a, a conference that's had such a strong focus on gender equality, um, and if we look at the gender mix in the room, but if we look at the gender mix of the speakers, I think only having 30% women is very disappointing. Not to take away from any of the speakers, but I think if we're really um, uh, passionate and committed to gender equality, we need to uh, mainstream it throughout all of our activities. Can I just respond quickly? Yeah. Um, we did put out a public call for pictures for this, so um, I would encourage fellow women to get involved. It is slightly terrifying, but it's really fun. So um, we, if we run this again, it would be great to have more pictures from women and less parts from those of us that work here as well. This was an experiment this year. <laughs> I'm actually also stepping in for Kirsten Armstrong, Miss Kirsten Armstrong, who was actually invited to pitch today. So, question over here in the green. Yeah, hello. Uh, <clears throat> I have a question to Therese Faulkner. My question is that does she really think that the German aid, the GIZ, having uh, government agency owned by the Ministry of Economy and uh, doing crowding out service for the German companies is an efficient organization. So, um, I guess that's why my initial uh, line in the pitch was um, informed by but not the same as GIZ. I think it's worth having a look at how that is structured in the um, interest of reducing those transaction costs and, and harnessing, as I said, that development expertise. But no, I do not think we should completely copy the German model. And I, I know it has been um, accused of some inefficiencies in the past, especially when GIZ um, was, it was um, a number of separate implementing organisations which were then brought into, into one organisation. And I think that was quite inefficient. But yeah, it's worth having a look at that type of model. That, that's the only thing I'm saying. Chris, 
Uh, thank you all for your great pictures. I just had a uh, question for the first speaker. So it seems like there's great returns uh, for these social enterprises. Uh, it's a little bit unclear to me uh, how exactly aid or the development program would assist. If there's great returns, is this a lack of access to capital? Sort of question in terms of is that credit markets? Like I'm just trying, how would aid specifically assist in helping these social enterprises sort of uh, spring up around the place and deal with a very important issue? Primarily aid can help to create the environment to allow these social enterprises to flourish and create the framework in which these environments can, can operate. Also, I think importantly, there's a huge um, impact investment opportunities out there. There's, 100, uh, there's uh, over 100 billion. It's really difficult for investors to find ones that are credible and um, are worth investing in. So governments and aid agencies can get involved in helping, to, helping the investor market determine which ones are um, investable. Question here. Thank you, uh, Jane Rogers from Investing in Women, and it's a follow-on question, so we should really get together, <coughs> the three of us, because a big section in Investing in Women is, in fact, with impact investors, but from a very strong gender angle, and uh, it's probably out of, uh, out of place to say it, but the overall aim is to reduce sexism in the finance sector. Women can be well-trained, healthy, and en energised by uh, pitches such as yours, uh, and ready to expand into export and trade in particular, and they just cannot get beyond that barrier, which is very big, and that is the barrier uh, to capital. So if aid can help nudge, as we like to say, nudge the finance sector, perhaps being a little more, a lot more gender responsive in both the way they do their uh, scoping for loans and, and investments, equity or debt or whatever. Thank you. So, it, so we've met one of our aims of the conference. Even through three minutes, we've already got some networking going. <laughs> I had a question for, for Bob and for Stephen. What kind of, I'd like both ideas. What kind of magnitude are we talking about to make these viable? Are we talking about a $1 million system, a $10 million, $100 million, $500 million? Well, it, the, it depends whether you want to just be in the Pacific or more broadly. But uh, if, we can, if the money comes from the Export Finance Insurance Corporation, I think we can afford to be quite ambitious because uh, that will be uh, an investment which they'll eventually get a return on. Uh, but if it's going to come out of the budget itself, then you start quite small. I mean, you only need uh, several million, I think, to have a basic financial institution that will operate. But... Uh, the experience suggests it can actually make a profit, so it shouldn't, over time, be a drain on the budget, but there will be a capital injection initially, and it depends on the source how big it is. Uh, well, there's different ways to answer that question. One, if you do think long-term, the future of aid, it really is moving away from country programs towards these global and regional initiatives, and that, from that scenario, the sky's the limit. If you look at ACR, they budget over 100 million. That's one benchmark. And then what we actually argue in our paper, because it's actually with Camilla, is uh, there is actually $40 million being spent on global medical research, but it's mainly through uh, National Health Medical Research Council. It's on that basic research. It's not being translated. Uh, AusAid, DFAT have put their toe in the water of uh, that translational research, where we basically argue for matching the basic research by the translational research, so that would be a double. That would get you, say, 80. Um, as you can see, this number down here is the number of votes. 209 votes have come in. 
So if anyone is you know, waiting for the quality of the answers to the questions before they are <laughs> deciding now is the time to do it, we will be, uh, there we go, one more, good job. <laughs> we will be uh, announcing the winner quite soon, so we'll have time for one or two more questions or comments. Mine, mine is to Ashley. Ashley, you know, we—I think sometimes in the sector we're a bit scared that if we're honest about aid, that the baby might be thrown out with the bathwater. In your pitch, how much do you think we should, sorry, get to, you know, what some of the—I won't say failures—challenges are? Because we don't seem to talk about them much. Yeah, and I think that that's something that is a bit of an issue because when things, you know, maybe don't go to plan, people think, oh, it's not working. And they don't know why. They don't know that it's hard. They don't know that it's complex. And I think that is something that we do need to bring across in our communications as well. But of course, you know, working in communications, it's all about the spin. There's a way to spin the challenges of aid in a way that makes it engaging and interesting to hear about and to connect with audiences. So it's also, you know, something that I think we should talk about more, but also think about how we do it in a way that doesn't make people just think, uh, nothing works, I can't do anything, I may as well not donate or, or you know, support aid because nothing works. Like, we really have to keep it positive but engaging and uh, honest, a bit more honest, I think, is a good idea. <laughs> Uh, it's a question for Matthew about um, migration potential. So a good idea about looking at APTC, um, and I guess it could become could help to commercialise that model a little bit because presumably if there's a carrot of migration at the end, more people will be willing to pay for those courses, and perhaps the aid budget could be freed up to help more of the poor to use the APTC. I think it's not. Uh, very poverty focused at the moment, it's mostly at the service of industry, uh, which is good in itself. But then what would you do about the flow of good graduates into local industries in the Pacific? And also have you thought about other sectors that we, we don't think about, such as sport, huge sport, sport skills in the Pacific, huge cultural skills in the arts, um, skills of community development, the military and security. Uh, are these sectors that you've thought about beyond the horticulture, the kind of seasonal worker program? Uh, yeah, thanks very much for the question. Um, look, I, I think there are, there are many, um, many industries that offer potential and those will change um, in the future as the Australian um, population ages. So I think the aged care sector is a very obvious one. Um, there's no aged care sector in most of the Pacific, um, so investing in education uh, in countries like Tonga, where there is there are no nursing homes, um, won't lead to brain drain. So brain drain is always the concern when we talk about um, labour mobility um, for the region, and it's certainly something that needs to be thought about. Um, but I don't think it's an argument against the promotion of labour mobility per se. It's just something that needs to be considered in the design. For example, by training more people than are needed in, a, in an industry locally or by focusing on industries where, which don't exist um, in that country. Thank you. I, uh, Ashley, I thought uh, 
hers was by far the best presentation. <laughs> <than I've ever. laughs> I didn't vote for you, Ashley. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I think we need more of Ashley's type of presentation <laughs> so that uh, we can uh, inspire the community. My question really is to Chris uh, about the establishment because I like the idea of the establishment of a human, human rights and planetary defenders movement. My question is, Chris, and it goes to Ashley as well, I suppose, uh, how important is it and how do we engage the Australian community beyond being taxpayers to, do, to pay for the government aid program and donors to NGOs. How important it is, is it to actually engage them in human rights and defending activities? Um, I mean, the reason I made the pitch I did is because I think we've all got personal responsibility. And it doesn't matter if we are seeing friends and family abused or whether we're seeing partners abused. We've got to stand up. And so that's the starting point for me. And, that's, and then we have to extend our horizons to others. And that's evolutionary psychology, that actually we don't do that very well. We extend our horizons to our closest. We need to be, have these commitment gadgets that force us into seeing further, seeing as one, voting for humanity, which is what you can do if you vote for me. Because <laughs> But, but I think the important point is this emerges, and I think we try too often to social engineer it through our programs, but we had some great stuff in the gender panel about how that emerges through reflexive practice, through feminist principles of organising, through international linkages. And they, those exist, but let's build from them, learn from them, join them. Okay, so we're going to announce the winner in a moment. Um, the votes will come up, so before we actually show the vote, just wanted to thank all of our very brave um, and well presented. <laughs> One more vote just came in, someone waiting to the last second. Um, and the winner is, hopefully this works. <laughs> You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and Global Development Policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media.